Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. 2018 marked Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 25th year on the U.S. Supreme Court. We're joined now by the directors of the film, Julie Cohen and Betsy Wright. Julie is a longtime filmmaker who's made eight documentaries and was the creator of Court TV's Supreme Court Watch. Betsy West is a 21-time Emmy winner for her work as an ABC News producer who now teaches at the Columbia School of Journalism. Julie Cohen and Betsy Wright, it is so great to see you—Betsy West, it is so great <laughs> to see you both. Uh, Julie, why don't you start off by talking about why you decided to take on Ruth Bader Ginsburg as the um, subject of your film? Why did you decide to follow her? Um, you know, how could you not is almost a question with, uh, with our RBG. Um, Betsy and I had each uh, individually for separate projects done interviews with her um, se several years ago. We had followed her kind of stellar rise to rock stardom as young women be began to sort of idolize her as the notorious RBG. And we just felt like, you know, someone ought to do a full dress, serious documentary covering this extraordinary woman's life. And why not have it be us? So, Betsy West, uh, you've covered many different issues, and um, uh, one of the things you've done most recently is the Makers series, Women Making a Difference. Um, so, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you—both you and Julie had interviewed her separately. Yes, yes. And what most strikes you about her? If you can begin by sort of giving us a nutshell description of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court justice. Well, um— when you meet her in person, she's a very tiny person, and yet she has a kind of commanding presence. I think that's the contrast about her that um, really strikes you. Uh, she's a very serious person, the kind of person, if you say, hey, how are you? She doesn't immediately jump in to tell you how she is. She thinks about it. She's very deliberate in everything she says. So, as she just said to us in, in the interview, uh, I tend to be rather sober. On the other hand, she uh, has a fabulous sense of humor. And uh, as we discovered in the film, she loves to laugh. And uh, so she's a very, she's a multi-dimensional person with an extraordinary life story. And I want to talk about that life story. I want to first, though, go to a clip from your documentary, RBG, where Justice Ginsburg talks about the first time she argued before the Supreme Court, in the case of Frontiero versus Richardson in 1972. The case centered on a female Air Force lieutenant who'd been denied the same housing and medical benefits as her male colleagues. Justice Ginsburg, um, then the lawyer Ginsburg, argued the Air Force's statute for housing allowances treated women as inferior, and the Supreme Court ruled in her favor eight to one. With not a single question, I just went on speaking, and I, at the time, wondered, are they just indulging me and not listening, or am I telling them something they haven't heard before, and are they paying attention? The justices were just glued to her. I don't think they were 
expecting to have to deal with something as powerful as a sheer force of her argument that was just all-encompassing. And they were there to talk about a little statute in the, in the government code. I mean, it was, it was just, we, we seized the moment to change American society. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, we urge a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All, All I, I ask, ask of, our, of brethren our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. An excerpt from RBG, the documentary that's just aired at Sundance Film Festival to much acclaim. In that clip, we also heard from Brenda Feigen, who is co-director with Ruth Bader Ginsburg of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. So, Julie Cohen, let's talk about her life before she was the notorious RBG, um, before she was Supreme Court justice. Sure. I mean, you know, that, that was one of the big factors making us want to make this film. A lot of the people that love her and think she's cool and know about her descents uh, don't really know the full story and don't appreciate how much she achieved for women's equal rights under law in her career as a lawyer, um, particularly during those, those times of the Women's Rights Projects in the 1970s. Basically, she took on uh, a number of cases. There were six, including that one you just played, Frontiero, that she argued before the Supreme Court, winning five of them, making the case at a time when that case wasn't widely understood or even, you know, it was sort of hard for society and the male justices at the time to register the idea that, oh, wait, the Constitution should provide equal rights for men and women. This was—she was following up on what Thurgood Marshall had done sort of the decade earlier, um, basically a slow legal march for civil rights for people of all races, and she was applying that idea to, to gender and had extraordinary success with it. Hmm. Um, I wanted to go to another clip. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, nominated by President Clinton in 1993. Uh, this is during her Senate confirmation hearing, um, when she openly defended—and this was highly unusual—openly defended a woman's right to have an abortion. This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity. It's a decision that she must make for herself. And when government controls that decision for her, she is being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. During Ruth Bader Ginsburg's 1993 Supreme Court confirmation hearing, Republican Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah questioned her stance on abortion. The so-called constitutional right to abortion, a right which many, including myself, think was created out of uh, thin air by the court. But you asked me yeah. the question in relation to the Supreme Court's precedent, and you now ask me an, another question in relation to the Supreme Court's precedent. The Supreme Court's precedent is that access to abortion is part of the liberty guaranteed by the Well, that was just the to reaffirm by it. 
That 1993 confirmation hearing, Betsy West, how unusual, especially in light of now in 2018, imagine hearing a Supreme Court justice being so open about her support for uh, freedom to choose for women, about her support for an abortion. Talk about the significance of this. It was She was extremely forthright about this. She's a very principled person, and she was not going to pull her punches on this. I mean, the amazing thing is that after that, she was confirmed 96 to 3. I 96 know, to three. 3. And you heard, I mean, Orrin Hatch basically saying, look, we disagree, but I think you're well qualified to uh, serve on the Supreme Court, and you've been nominated by our president, who happens to be a Democrat. That's the way this system works. Uh, it's kind of uh, uh, poignant and extraordinary to hear that in, you know, today. You both interviewed Orrin Hatch. I mean, you yeah. interviewed him yes. for the film. Yes. Um, did he say he would support her today? I mean, he was very laudatory yes. of yes, her. Yes, he was. Uh, first of all, he said, I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He said that. I was like, what? <laughs> really, he admires her so much. He admires her brain, and he admires her character, what she stands for. And he said, look, I think it's a good thing for the court to have an articulate, smart liberal on the court. He said, I think it, it, it elevates the entire uh, conversation, the debate. Uh, I, I was uh, surprised by how forceful and strong he was in his ongoing support for her. And talking about uh, relationships that might surprise some, uh, her relationship, Julie Cohen, with uh, Justice Scalia and the significance of this, the history of this before Scalia died. Yes. I mean, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg were quite close, going back to their days together on the court of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit in the 1980s, admired each other as kind of intellectual sparring partners, um, and really liked and loved each other as, as friends. They both loved opera. They both had a lot of other intellectual inter interests in theater and in, in, in literature. Um, and the fact that they disagreed so vehemently on the law um, extraordinarily seemed to have made them cl closer to one another. They don't—you know, they didn't deny that it sometimes wasn't exactly pleasant. You know, after—one example that the, the justice has talked about is, um, you know, after Bush v. Gore, when they were like, you know, couldn't have been more opposed to each other's point of view, when the stakes couldn't have been higher. At one point at the end of the evening, he gave her a call and said, Ruth, you know, it, it's a—go home and, and take a hot bath, and we'll see each other again in the morning. And, you know, it's a kind and of— And for those who aren't familiar with Bush v. Gore, though they may have been familiar—become familiar with the results? Uh, yes. The Supreme Court decision that ended the recount in Florida and led to George W. Bush becoming president of the United States. Being chosen uh, as president by the U.S. Supreme, Supreme Court. And, and she dissented. Right. Yes. Justice, Justice Scalia was one of the uh, one of the architects of the uh, majority decision saying uh, let, having George Bush become the president and Ruth Ginsburg wrote a 
wrote, wrote one of several. I think um, there were a number of dissents in that case, but, but was one of the dissenters in that case. And this issue of Ruth Bader Ginsburg being the dissenter, young people who are following her now, that's all they would think about. But that actually wasn't always the case. And you have a really interesting sort of um, image that you have in the film RBG, where you show her right in the center there, you know, much closer to the conservatives, and then how she moves to the left. Betsy West. Yeah. As, as uh, one of our interviewees said, she was never meant to be the great dissenter. She always wanted consensus, and she still wants consensus. Her, she has a very practical view of the law, and she's always trying to bring people over to her side. Uh, it's very important uh, to her that she have collegial relationships with her fellow justices and that she makes reasoned arguments. She's not a bomb thrower. However, when push comes to shove and she feels that, that the Constitution is not being followed, she's not afraid to uh, issue a very scathing dissent. And as she says, look, I'd rather be in the majority. <laughs> but when I'm not, I will write it. And she's got the doily collars. That's what I call them because they look like doily. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the Jabot. different ones. What yeah, do you say? Jabot is the name of them. Oh, excuse they me. Excuse me. She and Sandra Day O'Connor came up with this together, and and uh, she's yes. got the different ones for when she's in the yes. majority opinion or when she's expressing she's, the dissent. The dissent. Yes, it's her. She has a great fashion sense, and she brings her fashion sense to her clothing on the Supreme Court. And, you know, when Supreme Court justices come out to read opinions, it's not publicly known yet what the decision is going to be. So, so uh, if you're in the courtroom, of course, there aren't cameras in the courtroom, but if you're in the courtroom, you get to preview a few minutes earlier, because from Justice Ginsburg's collar, if she's going to read an opinion and she's wearing that lovely sort of black, sparkly, fan-shaped collar, you know she's about to uh, deliver a dissent. Hmm. We're going to go to a break, and then we're going to come back. And hear a really interesting comment from Justice Ginsburg. Just yesterday, uh, she spoke at the Filmmakers Lodge. She was interviewed by NPR's Nina Totenberg. And she talks about this seminal, foundational work of Catherine McKinnon and how it changed her view also of women's rights and what the whole issue of gender harassment is all about. This is Democracy Now! We're talking about a film that just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It's called RBG, and it's about the Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Stay with us.
This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah, and we will be here for the week. Yes, from the Sundance Film Festival, where a film about Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg called RBG has just premiered. Well, before the film, on Sunday, Justice Ginsburg, who flew into Park City, Utah this weekend, was interviewed by NPR's Nina Totenberg, a dear friend of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's. Um, Totenberg asked Ginsburg if she had ever been sexually harassed herself. This was the Supreme Court justice's answer. The answer is yes. Every woman of my vintage knows. Um, what sexual harassment is, although we didn't have a name for it. The attitude to sexual harassment was simply get past it. Boys will be boys. Well, I'll give you just one example. I'm taking a chemistry course at Cornell. And my instructor said, because I was uh, uncertain about my ability in that field, he said, I'll give you a practice exam. So he gave me a practice exam. The next day on the test, the test is the practice exam. And I knew exactly what he wanted in return. And that's just uh, one of many examples. This was not considered anything you could do something about, that the law could help you do something about, until a book was written by a then young woman named Kitty McKinnon, Catherine McKinnon, and it was called Sexual Harassment in the Workplace. And I was asked to read it by a publisher and give my opinion on whether it was worth publishing. It was a revelation. The first part described incidents like the one I just mentioned, and the next was how this anti-discrimination law, Title VII, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and sex, how that could be used as a tool to stop sexual harassment. It was eye-opening, and it was the beginning of a field that didn't exist until then. So just to close the loop here for a minute, um, what did you do about the professor? Did you just stay clear of him? What did you do? I went to his office and I said, how dare you, how dare you do this? <laughs> and that was the end of the, the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> I assume you did quite well on that exam. <laughs> And when I deliberately made two mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaking with NPR's Nina Totenberg, a woman who has interviewed her for decades. They've known each other for 40 years, and she is one of the people interviewed in the new documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg that will go throughout the week called RBG. Our guests again are the film's directors and producers, Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Betsy West, the significance of what Justice Ginsburg said, saying that Catherine McKinnon was so seminal. Well, I had never heard her talk about this, but it's absolutely true that uh, there really was no word for sexual harassment. Uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was being discriminated against as a young woman, and then uh, uh, later all of the women who flooded into the workplace in the 70s, just sort of felt like, hey, th this is the price of entry, something we got to put up with in order to have these fantastic jobs. And it was Catherine McKinnon, who, who was really just a, a young, just out of law school. She may still have been in law school when she started working on this concept and wrote this paper that was absolutely seminal and, in fact, was quoted by the Supreme Court in the mid-'80s, parts of her—some of the exact language that she used. And as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, it was a revelation. Hey, this is wrong, and, and it's actually unconstitutional. Uh, that's, that's something that'll, that I think a lot of people don't understand. Hmm. And, you know, we can't talk about your film, RBG, without talking about her family, her relationships, and particularly her husband, who was also a well-known lawyer. Julie Cohen, if you can talk about this love story um, that lasted for over half a century. Yeah. I mean, the love and marriage between Ruth and Marty Ginsburg is sort of like—it's uh, not just romantic, but it's, I think it's really an inspirational part of a feminist story. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would say, often the way like a super successful man talks about his wife, she'll say she wouldn't have gotten where she got without him pushing. And it's absolutely true. They met at Cornell, where they were both students. They fell madly in love. Uh, Marty Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said he was the first guy who even seemed to notice that she had a brain. That's because um, she was so beautiful. Because by she the was way. so beautiful, by the way. Yes. And, uh, um, and, he basically, although he was an incredibly successful tax attorney in his own right, he really devoted a lot of his life both to the family. He was the primary cook, and he certainly shared childcare responsibilities with her. And then he devoted a fair amount of his time and energy to pushing her career forth. She's not the type to go around self-promoting. He was not a, he was not shy about promoting her. And talk about that because we just played that clip of President Clinton. Um, nominating her. But how did that happen? How did Ruth Bader Ginsburg come to Clinton's attention? He certainly—she wasn't the only one he was looking at. Yeah. I mean, uh, Clinton himself had—says uh, that um, he wanted to nominate Governor Cuomo. Cuomo didn't want to do it. And then he started looking around and— um, Possibly, probably, yes, definitely, because of the Marty Ginsburg campaign and others of her supporters who just felt that she was a legal giant, uh, her name came to his attention. But as he says, uh, Marty Ginsburg wasn't the only person lobbying for somebody. And when he met her in person, he told us that within 15 minutes of their conversation, he knew he was going to nominate her. It was kind of a meeting of the minds about 
the law, the best way to make law. And so he was really taken by her. She was 60 years old when she was nominated. That was actually kind of on the old side. Uh, but he decided that uh, she deserved it. Hmm. I want to turn to the 2007 Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company pay discrimination case, the Supreme Court rejecting Lily Ledbetter's claim of pay discrimination at a Goodyear Tire plant in Alabama, where she worked as an overnight supervisor for 19 years. The decision moved Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to read her dissent from the bench, a relatively rare move reserved to criticize the majority opinion. This is part of Justice Ginsburg's dissent. In our view, the court does not comprehend or is indifferent to the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination. Title VII was meant to govern real-world employment practices, and that world is what the court ignores today. Pay disparities often occur, as they did in Ledbetter's case, in small increments. Only over time is there strong cause to suspect that discrimination is at work. So the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act later passed in response to the Supreme Court. The significance, Julie? Well, I mean, the, fair, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was a very important piece of legislation, and the significance in the RBG story is reminding you that, yes, of course, a key role of a Supreme Court justice and what you think of as maybe their greatest potential for accomplishing change is in a majority opinion they write. But um, Justice Ginsburg really made a huge difference in, in our laws by the dissent that she wrote in Lily Ledbetter, not only where she explained the unfairness of the statute of limitations that had been placed on how long a woman could wait to make a claim about uh, being paid unequally. But her dissent, she just came right out and said, like, the ball is now in Congress's court. Like, you know what? The, the, we're, maybe we're a little stuck here on the, on the judicial side. Congress, take some action here. And Congress took her up on it, and the law was passed and signed into law, actually the first piece of legislation that President Obama signed when he was inaugurated in January 2009. Um, at Sunday's uh, interview that uh, NPR's Nina Totenberg did with Justice Ginsburg, uh, she pointed out that Justice Ginsburg had hired clerks through the 2020 term and asked her about how long she'll stay on the court. My current answer, the answer that will continue to be my answer, as long as I can do the job full steam, I will be here. So that's Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Betsy West. She has chosen her clerks through the 2020 term. Think she's sending a signal? <laughs> yes. Uh, she seems very determined to continue doing the job that she loves. I mean, one of the a most— survivor of pancreatic cancer, cancer and colorectal, colorectal cancer. cancer. One of the most amazing uh, uh, scenes for us was filming her in her gym with her trainer, where she works out twice a week. She does a grueling one-hour workout without fail. She is well, and and the workout involves you know planks, push-ups, medicine ball, the whole routine. It's the new Jane Fonda workout video. It's, I'm expecting yeah, I to mean, say eighty. 
85 is the new 45. Who knows? I mean, she is determined to keep herself in shape. We have 10 seconds, Julie. What most surprised you in meeting Justice Ginsburg and doing this documentary? Um, you know, there are a lot of legends that have arisen about Justice Ginsburg over the past couple of years as she's become the notorious RBG, including the workout, including her long work hours. I think the surprise was that most of those legends are true. Well, I want to thank Julie Cohen and Betsy West, directors and producers of the documentary RBG, which just had its world premiere here at the Sundance Film Festival. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, as the coronavirus pandemic shut down business as usual around the world, some saw a kind of silver lining in emerging images of formerly gray skies returned to blue, skylines re-emerging from years of polluted muck. More than an ironic upside, those images were a message that situations presented as inevitable have always been choices, that it is action and inaction that have kept those skies gray. COVID-19 may be hastening things, but the oil industry was already on the ropes. And while we welcome the demise of an industry that does such harm, we have to remember that a creature can do tremendous damage in its death throes and that a better way forward isn't guaranteed unless we fight for it. We learn about the end of oil and what could come next with Antonia Juhas. She's an energy analyst, journalist, and author whose books include The Bush Agenda, Invading the World One Economy at a Time, the Tyranny of Oil, the World's Most Powerful Industry, and What We Must Do to Stop It, and most recently, Black Tide, the Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. That's coming up, but first, a brief look back at recent press. Josh Cho lays it out plainly on FAIR.org. When the president of the country has explicitly declared his intentions to withhold federal election funding from states that are trying to make it easier to vote during a pandemic, appointed a major donor with conflicts of interest to sabotage the U.S. Postal Service, claimed that the defeat of lawsuits aimed at disenfranchising voters is the biggest risk to his reelection bid, deputized 50,000 poll watchers to intimidate people, advised his supporters to commit the felony of double voting, proposed postponing the elections, preemptively cast results in doubt by suggesting they may not be legitimate, and repeatedly refused to state whether he would concede the election in the event of a loss, well, then the evidence threshold has been satisfied for journalists to declare that he is trying to steal the election. Journalists and newsrooms have an obligation to report that the most powerful person in the country is trying to subvert the democratic process. A failure to do so is journalistic malpractice. 
Yet, while you can find several op-eds pointing out that Donald Trump is acting to steal the election, for serious news reporters it remains, and one suspects will continue to remain, a theoretical possibility. Cho searched articles in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Houston Chronicle, Chicago Tribune, Minneapolis Star Tribune, L.A. Times, and USA Today from July 7th to September 7th, and found various scenarios of how Trump could steal the election, columns wondering what might happen if Trump refused to concede the election, and reports on Democratic politicians asserting that Trump is trying to steal the election. But not a single news article treating it as something that is happening. And along with stories on Democratic Party politicians like Beto O'Rourke warning of what might happen, corporate media have made space for Trump to air his accusations that it's Democrats who are trying to commit election theft encouraging any who would want to to see it all as a story of partisan dispute. Maybe worst, while a number of stories explore scenarios, Cho found no articles calling for action, conveying a presumption that citizens are supposed to be passive spectators and not active participants. Legal scholars note that the peaceful succession of power relies more on norms than on laws or institutions. And as we have learned, norms mean nothing to Donald Trump. And every time he runs roughshod over another of them, corporate, elite, democracy dies in darkness news media cover for it with palaver about how he's breaking with tradition. The cowardice is shocking. But get ready for the hypocrisy if Trump, as one can only wish, loses and the same corporate press corps claim they're the ones who pulled us back from the precipice. History will look unkindly also on things like the Associated Press's September 4th election season launch piece, which multiple critics noted could stand as an emblem of elite media's abdication of duty in the Trump era. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, AP told readers, offer, quote, dueling versions of reality, close quote. Yeah, AP chief political reporter Steve Peoples wrote, quote, on the campaign trail with President Donald Trump, the pandemic is largely over, the economy is roaring back, and murderous mobs are infiltrating America's suburbs. With Democrat Joe Biden, the pandemic is raging, the economy isn't lifting the working class, and systemic racism threatens black lives across America, close quote. Oh, those, quote, dizzyingly different versions of reality, close quote, laments the piece, before adding a note that should enter textbooks. Quote, all the conflicting messages carry at least a sliver of truth, some much more than others, close quote. For a reporter, to find yourself translating away from the coherent like that might be a sign you should turn to a different profession. For readers, it's a sure sign to turn the page. And finally, the both-sidism that plagues elite journalism extends beyond partisanship per se. Writer-organizer Dorothy Benz called out a Washington Post piece from late August. U.S. political divide becomes increasingly violent rattling activists and police. 
Her high school English teacher, Benz noted, would have taken a red pen to that title, pointing out that divides can't be violent, only people can. So people on both sides of a divide are becoming violent, is what the Post meant, and that's the real problem. The piece describes an armed right-wing attack on a voter registration rally sponsored by a Democratic congressional candidate in Tyler, Texas. Hundreds of armed people descended on the peaceful crowd, yelling obscenities and physically assaulting them. The piece describes the scene as scuffling, downplaying the level of violence and intimidation involved in the attack and suggesting that both sides contributed to it. The article refers to a spate of exchanges and a series of disturbances to describe what is a pattern of right-wing political violence directed at protests against police brutality. Later on, the assault in Tyler, Texas, is summed up as an incident where brawls erupted. Worst of all, Ben's notes, the Post manages to talk about various armed attacks on people protesting police violence without ever using the words racism, racist, or white supremacy. The U.S. is teetering on the brink of white supremacist-fueled authoritarianism. Instead of raising the alarm, the Washington Post all but shrugs, concluding this piece, quote, With so many people showing up armed, including growing numbers of left-wing social justice activists, police are warning people that they need to understand the risks associated with modern-day protests and political activity, close quote. Thus, democratic protest is treated like some kind of luxury extreme sport, where you need to consider carefully whether or not to participate. And if you get hurt, it's your own fault. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Dow Jones dropped ExxonMobil from its blue-chip stock market index, a spot it had occupied since 1928. Major banks are talking, anyway, about divesting from oil and gas. Hundreds of U.S. institutions, including colleges, have done so. And, of course, hundreds of millions of people globally have spoken out, marched, and agitated against a fossil fuel industry that is despoiling ecosystems, driving climate disruption, distorting international relations, and wreaking havoc on the lives and communities of mostly poor, mostly people of color around the world. A convergence of factors, plus COVID, suggest we are seeing the irreversible decline of the oil industry and its stranglehold. But how do we manage that, and what comes next? Our guest says that has a lot to do with us. Investigative journalist and author Antonia Yuhas has been writing about oil for years now. Her most recent book is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Antonia Yuhas. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back with you. I'd like to talk about these companion pieces you've just written, The End of Oil is Near and Bailout. They appeared in the magazine Sierra Would you talk first about the convergence of factors that spelled the end of the oil industry before coronavirus, and then what's been the impact of the pandemic on that movement? Yeah, I think those problems can really be boiled down to an industry that's been producing a product that people and the world 
have been trying to get away from and succeeded in getting away from. And the reason why people have been trying so hard to get away from it is manifold, but it amounts to the contribution of oil and fossil fuels to the climate crisis and the experience of people who live where oil operations take place, whether that's exploration or drilling or transport or consumption or dumping, the voices of those people have been increasingly listened to and elevated and responded to because of the problems that they have faced, the host of problems they've faced from public health to the environment to politics to economics. And their voices are being listened to more and more, which has helped spur movements for alternatives, um, accessible and affordable alternatives a shift demanding a politics that doesn't continue to subsidize the oil industry to the detriment of those alternatives and doesn't favor those companies over companies that provide alternatives to fossil fuels. So a weakening of the political power and a response to that shift, the desire to move away from oil being reflected in policy changes that are moving that needle further away. All of that has resulted in a decline in the growth of demand for oil, which really started to accelerate in 2015. So a weakening of demand, a weakening of price for oil, and then in response to that weakening demand and the weakening price that producers could get for their product to try and make the same amount of money, they kept producing more and more and more. And the U.S. was really at the forefront of this problem, just producing more and more and more, reaching record levels. So after in the Obama administration, the last year of the Obama administration, the U.S. was producing less oil than the year before. And then under the Trump administration, we just reached record highs of production. That was also happening globally. So we had, starting in 2018 in particular, just this glut of oil, way too much product, not enough demand for it, a low price in return for it but the producers kept making more and more and more and more. So you've got too much product, not enough money to be made off of it, not enough demand for it. And that also meant that the economic returns to these companies were failing. So their profits were collapsing. Investors were starting to look elsewhere. Banks were starting to look elsewhere. And the interest in the companies was waning and the ability to make money off of them and their ability to make money was waning. And this all built up to the perfect visual encapsulation of this was before the coronavirus hit, the oil industry was was already facing a glut. Then when the virus hit and people started responding to stay-at-home orders and they were staying at home and they weren't driving and they weren't flying and products weren't moving as much, so trucks weren't moving as much to move products around, but the companies and the countries kept producing oil. And then we had these armadas of oil tankers. Hmm floating around the ocean in harbor. So people who lived in California saw them. People who lived on coasts around the world just saw this buildup of tankers in harbors in the ocean. And that was oil being stored at sea because there was just too much of it and nowhere to put it. And a lot of those tankers are still floating around right now on this sort of hope that the oil company has that someday – its oil will be worth more tomorrow than it is today. So they're sticking it at sea to wait for that moment. But if, if I'm right and if 
Moody's, for example, has predicted that 2019 was the height of oil demand ever, that we're never going to demand as much oil as we did that year. BP has also predicted the same thing. Then that oil isn't going to see a brighter tomorrow. And instead, what needs to happen is they just need to stop producing so much of a product that we really don't want. I I very much like the way you put people and protest at the center of change rather than saying, oh, well, you know, the the profits are shrinking, you know, the market spoke, you know, or or something like that, uh, putting that first. Everything we understand about environmental and human health points to keep it in the ground. And yet we're forced to watch this daylight nightmare of companies pushing to drill for every last drop, you know, causing all kinds of harms. It reminds me of the expression, you know, who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake. But the industry, as you explain, is doing that and can do that because of government policy, including COVID policy. So folks may have suspected it was happening, but you spell out some ways that the Trump White House is propping up the oil industry right now. What should we know about that? So first of all, the activism and the market forces are intimately related. They are they are operating as a response to one another. So the activism is changing the market forces and the market forces are responding to the activism. So activists are targeting banks. They're targeting investment funds like BlackRock and they're saying we don't want you investing in fossil fuels anymore. And the banks and the investment funds and investors are responding. So trillions of dollars of investments have been moved out of the fossil fuel sector in a direct response to activism pushing those changes. There's definitely still holdouts, particularly banks and investment funds. But there's a response that is happening. These these forces are working in tandem and should be understood as not independent of one another. Right, right. So we're basically very much at this moment where the actions of the public to push public policy are really the determining factor on what's going to happen with the industry. And so right now, the International Monetary Fund has estimated that the global fossil fuel industry is subsidized to the tune of some $5 trillion a year. So this is an industry that is very much propped up by government policy. And government policy right now really can be the deciding factor on if fossil fuels and oil in particular continue to be propped up. And the Trump administration has definitely come in to try to do that, really with their Republican allies in in Congress, because the Democrats have definitely pushed back against these plans. But so far, they're moving forward. And the Trump administration first said, we're going to bail out the fossil fuel industry. And Democrats said, no, that's not going to happen. So what we ended up with was three somewhat stealth measures to do that. The first is that a very large number of oil companies have been supported by the CARES Act through the Paycheck Protection Program. And this research organization documented, did research for me, for my Sierra Magazine articles, And documented found that some 7,000 oil and gas companies have received as much as $7 billion in Paycheck Protection Program money. And that's gone to what I would consider rather large oil companies 
And it's also contributed to the overall bias of the Paycheck Protection Program towards white male businesses that we've seen Mm -hmm. because the oil industry is globally, by and large, run by white men. And in the United States, full-time employees of oil companies also tend to be white men. So when we looked at the for companies that stated their ownership, the oil and gas companies were definitely disproportionately white male owned as well. So that's a lot of money. And then the Republicans really snuck in a tax loophole into the CARES Act, which the Democrats have been trying to close. Hmm. And through that tax loophole, at least 50 publicly traded oil and gas companies have taken at least $3 billion. And I'm really emphasizing the at least because no one has collected this information. What right. what the Jesse Coleman, the researcher at Documented, did was literally just look up the Securities and Exchange Commission information that is published by publicly traded companies that's required. It's basically their tax information and just looked up oil and gas companies to see which ones publicly stated that they took this tax loophole. But, of course, that only includes the companies he was able to look up. And it doesn't include any privately held companies because they don't have to release this information, though there are a lot of privately held oil and gas companies in the United States. A lot of fracking companies are really just owned by hedge funds that are just trying to make money, you know, are are not oil and gas companies. They're really just hedge funds. And they don't have to share this information. So 50 companies made at least $3 billion that way. But the biggest pool of money is coming out of these changes that happened through the Federal Reserve under lobbying by the Trump administration. And it's unknown how many hundreds of billions of dollars this could end up being. But the Federal Reserve implemented several new programs. And I would just preface this by saying the Federal Reserve needed to take action. We need to save the economy from COVID. But these actions included new mechanisms that are overweighted in fossil fuels, so Mm -hmm. more weighted in fossil fuels than their counterparts in the the regular market. And essentially, for the first time ever, you and I, the American taxpayer, through the Federal Reserve, now own the debt of some of the largest oil and gas companies in the world, Exxon, Chevron, Energy Transfer Partners, the pipeline company behind Dakota Access Pipeline. You name it, we now own their debt. So we're backing up these companies and the Federal Reserve is essentially sending a a message to the market that the fossil fuel industry will be supported so that ExxonMobil, the day after these programs were announced by the Fed, went out and sold nearly $10 billion in the debt market, so being propped up to the tune of nearly $10 billion. So this is all just this sort of mass subsidization through the Fed that is overweighted in fossil fuels, and that's deeply problematic. So those are the mechanisms that the federal government is is trying to put into place to prop up this industry. And to be clear, propping up or bailing out the companies has not translated to the retention necessarily of jobs in the industry. No, because we're seeing the same companies laying off thousands of workers. Estimates of oil industry job loss are reaching about 100,000 in the United States alone. So I I do think that some workers have been furloughed, certainly by having these companies supported. But, you know, what a lot of people I've spoken to would rather see, for example, is you've got a lot of furloughed workers that are getting support through the Paycheck Protection Program. That's great. We want to see workers protected. Let's use this time that they're at home 
to provide them with training for the transition. Let's do online training for solar installation, for jobs in the green economy, and use this as a time and opportunity for just transition rather than to prop up companies that would otherwise be going away because they're producing a product that we don't want anymore. And let's shift to supporting industries for the green future and the green economy. And that's not happening. So there's sort of a massive disproportionate support in the Paycheck Protection Program for fossil fuel companies versus renewable green energy companies. Well, finally, we were talking with you in 2006 about how you weren't allowed to say the U.S. invasion and war on Iraq had anything to do with oil. That was déclassé. You know, that wasn't being a serious student of foreign policy. You said at the time that you thought the public is smart enough to understand trade policy, to understand the role of oil in war, for example. I would venture to say you think the public are smart enough to see the economic and the human value in a just transition to a healthier economy and to discern which policies take us closer or further from that goal and not to fall for the kind of old jobs versus environment lie. I wonder what you think reporters might be doing more or less of to help with that. I think that is a myth that let's hope it goes away sometime really soon because there's been so many great studies, such great economic studies that have looked at basically what have been the best economic recovery programs since 2008, since the 2008 crash, and what's provided the best long-term and immediate economic support for economies trying to rebuild after this type of crisis. And green recovery programs have always done better, essentially, since 2008. And economists point to several things. One is the oil industry has been moving away from workers for years now. They've been increasingly automating their activities and trying to gain, quote-unquote, efficiencies by having less workers. Workers are expensive. They get hurt. They organize. They demand things like pay and health care. So, so strange. And it's much better to work with machines. And the industry has been increasingly automating. And there have been some really great economic studies that have shown that more investment dollars into the fossil fuel industry yields less, much less returns for jobs than does investments in the green sector, where these are jobs that are being done by people in solar, installation and wind, in efficiency for homes and buildings, new things that we need like better pipelines to move cleaner, safer water in the United States. You know, a pipeline worker is agnostic as to what's flowing through their pipeline, so they don't need it to be oil and gas. It could very happily for them be water. And we need a lot of rebuilding for water in this country. Basically, there's a greater jobs return and a greater safety return on moving to the green economy. And so this is, it's a job winner to move to a green economy and a job loser to double down on fossil fuels. So in addition to the fact that the industry is moving away from human employment, they're also just trying to get leaner and meaner as they lose money, as they lose returns, they need to try and make more money by spending less. And so they're also just working with less, not only automating, but just trying to do everything with fewer operations. And there are companies that are just going to fall by the wayside, regardless of how much money we spend to try and prop up the executives and the owners, which is where a lot of the money is going, 
they're still going to go bankrupt. They're still going to go away because there just isn't enough demand for their products. So we're throwing good money after bad, essentially. We've been speaking with journalist and author Antonia Juhasz. Her most recent book is Black Tide, The Devastating Impact of the Gulf Oil Spill, out from John Wiley and Sons. You can find the articles The End of Oil is Near and Bailout on her website, AntoniaJuhasz.net. Antonia Juhasz, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. <laughs>